With 80 plus episodes in the vault and more than $3 million in total compensation increases received by The Secrets Village, KP and PR are still dropping jewels. Secrets continues to validate that you are not crazy with the challenges faced in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations. A listener describes Secrets as helping to pinpoint areas I need to develop and conversations I never knew I needed to hear. And season five will definitely not disappoint as they continue to deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to increase your market value by building generational wealth. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have paid their dues to reach the top of corporate America, and they want to share their stories with you to transform your journey. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season five. Hey everybody, welcome to Secret Season Number Five, Episode Number One. KP, my brother, can you believe we're about to kick off season number five, man? I mean, this is ridiculous. This is like really a WTF moment, <laughs> you know, because you know, I don't think either of us had in our minds that we would be recording more than 80 episodes. No, right? not at all. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, what that means is I've been over your house about 80 times eating shit up. That's really what that it, means. It does, you know? it does. It's drinking everything, you know? What I mean? Everything. I mean, I, it's dry. <laughs> it's dry over at the crib. <laughs> you know, more that we would have had, uh, honestly, I created a village of support or a community of practice that continues to grow in size and more importantly in growth and generational wealth, right? I mean, that's like the one of the most important features that we talk about. Seriously, we have helped our listeners and coaching clients amass close to $3 million in total compensation increases since we launched our Secrets platform. And we know that number is growing based off of some of the conversations we just had over the last week and a half or so. That's going to grow like exponentially. And PR, I'm incredibly humbled by our progress so far as well, because you're absolutely correct. We had no idea our vision would grow to what we now know as secrets. More than 22,000 podcast downloads and followers that make up our village is really the secret sauce for us at the end of the day. Did you catch that little joke, Rich? That's like a dad joke, that secret sauce. Never mind. Let's move on. But it's because it's our village that we constantly refer to that keeps us fresh with content about what you all want us to talk about and what you want us to put on this show, put on the table for you uh, to talk about. And in fact, season five will be scorching with heat as we touch on a myriad of topics and speak with some guests that will no doubt keep the hot fire coming from secrets. Look, KP, you are absolutely right. I mean, Mo hot fire is absolutely on the way. You know, I mean, you remember when back in the day when it was in Liver Color, they were like, Mo money, Mo money. It's about to be Mo fire, man. Like we just got all of the things. Unfortunately, stuff just keeps happening and we keep having people write to us and tell us, you know about this? The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> exactly. And I'm excited to see the dots connect, you know, for us, uh, for our secrets, you know, guests this season and for our community. And to be specific, this season, we're going to illustrate for you that not only are you not crazy, okay, we know what the system tries to make you feel like, but we want to make sure that you don't get distracted by that shiny object 
or in corporate shenanigans that knock you off the course, right? So today, Secrets Family, we are going to talk with someone who has worked in the tech industry. So when, when I say worked in the tech industry, that means you know that they know about the fine print effery that we speak of, right? And, and they have, um, have seen this firsthand and have done like an amazing job in terms of the work, you know, that they're able to do. But what this technology does, like it, it doesn't equate to, to the right outcomes. Like as high tech as we want to be, the technology doesn't get the right outcomes for us. So for, for the people who consume it or the people who actually need it the most, sometimes it, it fails them. And we are so happy to have our new member of the Secrets family, our sister, Sophia Noble, join us today. Within five minutes of talking to her, we knew she had to be part of the Secrets Village, and I absolutely promise you she would not disappoint. I know I'm I'm selling it high right now, but I will absolutely sell you short, you know, right here. So again, KP, why don't you do the honors of introducing Sophia to our listeners today? Absolutely. So Dr. Sophia Noble is an internet studies scholar and professor of gender studies and African-American studies at UCLA, where she serves as the co-founder and co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. And in 2021, she was recognized as a MacArthur Foundation Fellow, a.k.a. the Genius Award. So we got a genius on the show today. But she won that award for her groundbreaking work on algorithmic discrimination, which prompted her founding of a nonprofit equity engine to accelerate investment in companies, education, and networks driven by women of color. She is selling author of a best-selling book on racist and sexist algorithmic bias in commercial search engines entitled Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. And in 2022, she was recognized as the inaugural, that's the first, NAACP Archwell Digital Civil Rights Award recipient. She holds a PhD and MS in Library and Information Science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a BA in Sociology from Cal State Fresno, from Fresno State, y'all. And add some extra shine, because you know how I like to do sometimes, Dr. Noble is a board member of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, serving those vulnerable to online harassment, and was recently appointed as a board member for the Joint Center of Political and Economic Studies, America's Black Think Tank. So Seekers Village, hold on to your seatbelts, because Dr. Noble is about to bring some heat. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sophia Noble. Thank you so much, Keith. You are never, ever allowed to introduce me ever again because you put too much on it. All right. So thank you both so much for inviting me to be here. I'm so thrilled to be a part of this family. Y'all already know how we get down, okay? Keith didn't put too much on. He probably didn't put enough on it, y'all. You know what I'm saying? This was, he didn't use the, the, the first or the back piece of the bread. He used that good shit in the middle, you know, for this sandwich right no here, ends. right? <laughs> so look, again, Sophia, welcome to the show. We are so, so happy to have you. That's right. In today's episode, we'll talk with Sophia about her story and career journey. We will explore how she got inspired to expose the truth on algorithmic discrimination. We will provide some receipts on Black women in tech and the impact of bias and algorithms on people of color. And we will close out with secrets from Sophia on how to navigate working in male-dominated industries and how companies can eliminate bias in their apps and other practices. This is going to be a good one, y'all, so hold on. 
So we got a lot to cover today. So Sophia, I just want to kind of just jump into this, right? We like to start our interviews by giving our secrets listeners just some insight on who they're talking to. And I know Keith, you know, gave the intro, but we'd like to be able to kind of hear it from the guests. So can you please take a moment to bring our listeners up to speed on who you are, what's your upbringing, the educational background, and more importantly, like your career journey? Absolutely. Listen, it's so great to be here. You two are, I was so looking forward to this all day because I knew I was going to get to cap off my day with both some nonsense and some wisdom and just, and the love. So where do I start? I guess I'll start, you know, I grew up in Fresno, California, which everybody who is from California knows that's like not a place you want to be from. I don't know. It's like the place between the Bay and LA that everyone is constantly picking on. And really well-deserved. I mean, it's a horrible place to grow up, no doubt, especially if you're black, but, you know, I grew up there and uh, I went to Fresno state, you know, as an undergrad and I had a great experience there. You know, I I made lemonade out of lemons. I like to think of that kind of that experience of being a student activist and organizer in the eighties and the nineties when I was there. And I couldn't wait, like most young people, to leave their hometown. I just couldn't wait to get out. So I moved to the Bay. I lived in Oakland for about 13 years. I got my start in nonprofits. And then I worked for a big telecommunications technology company, like you said. And that was incredibly eye-opening because that was at a time when, you know, it was like the early internet days. And I know that you two are far too young to remember being on the internet in the 90s, but I was on the internet in the late 80s and the early 90s, back before we had this thing called the graphic user interface, the graphical user interface. It was when the the internet was a text-based medium. And girl, stop, stop, you stop, don't. stop. Yeah, yeah, stop. Please don't. Girl, I, I, remember, I remember getting that floppy disk in the mail. Okay. And, it just, it, 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 and this was before you had two phone lines. So oh, yeah. if somebody Find was it on up. the internet, exactly. and, and first off, when you was trying to log in, it would be like, doing all of that stuff. But then it was like, if your mama needed to call somebody, if she needed to do something, you need to get your ass off the internet. She's like, look now, have to. you're going to have to, you can't spend all day on this internet. I'm trying to do something. Somebody calling me for my job. Somebody from the house. church calling me. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Like, yes. yeah, girl. So we, we okay, do know so what you life know. was like before then. No. You know, this is so interesting too, because I, I feel like all us Gen Xers who had all the things before anybody else had it. I always try to remind people that, you know, I went to high school, you know, it was predominantly black and Latino high school. And I remember the only people in Fresno who ever like in the eighties who had pagers were surgeons who worked at the hospital and the brothers in my high school. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, we've, we're on the front end always the, like the early adopters, even though they try to play us, like we're digitally divided, we're really not, you know? So I got this start in telecommunications because I'd been on the internet and I was, uh, you know, um, I can remember my mom getting a computer in our house and and her saying like this is the future you got to get into computers and there was this tech magnet at Edison High School in Fresno which is like the historically black high school um on the west side and i remember um they would bus i went to Roosevelt and they would but they would bus which was the performance the performing arts magnet 
but they would bus all these white kids from across town to Edison to the computer tech magnet. It was called Computech. And my mom was like, you got to get into computers. These are the future. And I remember saying like, who in the world would want to sit at a computer all day and type like that sounded like a career <laughs> from hell. And here I am right yes. up in it. So, you know, I mean, I was not a good forecaster of future careers, but I was kind of in the mix early on. And, you know, I remember working on like computer technology centers and getting those funded by big companies and putting, this is before people had computers at home and you would go to a, a computer tech center in your neighborhood to get on the internet or to word process something. So I've been around tech for a long time as a power user and consumer and like a person who helped direct resources around that. And then I, you know, eventually after working for about 15 years in corporate America across telecom tech advertising, I decided to go back to grad school and to atone for my sins and, you know, that's really how I see it. Cause I, I also sold some booze and cars in there and I feel like you got to somewhere, you got to make up for that in your life. <laughs> and so that was really how I ended up going into a library and information science PhD program at the university of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I was really, you know, I, I think of myself as an information scientist and I went back to grad school later in life, you know, it's like 38, 39. I got my PhD when I was 41. That's a shout out for anyone who thinks they're too old. You're not too old. Go back to school whenever you feel the the calling, because it's calling for you. You know, I believe that what you're seeking is seeking you. And uh, those that was a great experience because you you can really, well, first of all, when you go back grown to grad school, you know things. While the kids are there finding themselves, you know, they're like 27 or 28, their brains are not even fully developed yet. And you're like, and they're like, oh my God, the paper. And you're like, Girl, I wrote that paper. I wrote a whole presentation for my boss in one night. I don't even know what you're doing. What, like, you know, you have all these other skills when you work in corporate America that make you extra special when you get to grad school. So, and, and, and when you're going to school uh, later, you ain't trying to go to the party on a Wednesday night. You know no, what I'm saying? You like, you, I don't like, need karaoke like that in my <laughs> life. I'm good. Because, you know, it's hard to go out now if somebody asks you to go out on a school night. You'd be like, wait, wait, I got to get up tomorrow. I know. My girls and I, you know, when we were, when we were in our thirties, we used to say, there's no need to go to the club on like Tuesday or Wednesday night. Cause we want the brother who's at home working on his PowerPoint. He's not in the club. He's working on his PowerPoint tonight on Wednesday. There's no need for us to be up in there. That's not who we're looking for. So that's, yeah, that's it is. Like that. See, that's the science, the uh, scientist in me, you know, you, you get that's strategic science. about the club going. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. I went on this journey and I ended up here with you. How lucky am I? How lucky am I? <laughs> that's amazing. It's such a great story. And first off, I just have to say, I never heard of no mess called reverse busing. I never heard of white people getting bus across the city here. It's a secret. <laughs> so that's that in itself was mind blowing because I was like, wow. They yeah. So I'll tell you what, if you see buses full of young white teenagers coming to the schools in your neighborhood, the schools that you, your parents went to and your grandparents went to, you know, something special is going on there. And of course, you also know what was happening, that in that tech magnet program, how many kids from the neighborhood were really led into it? Right. Hardly any. Hardly right. any. So, yeah. you know, these kinds of things, I mean, they're as 
as relevant today as they were in the 1980s when this was going down. That was probably some of the beginning of fear of missing out. You know what I mean? Like, hey, make sure that we got to know everything that's going on. Nobody has the right to be smarter than me or be doing something that I don't know about. That's exactly right. That's That's right. Yeah, I'm just curious, you know, as you talked about your 15-year career journey, was there some trigger point that happened? Was there some event or something that happened during that point in time when you said, I just, this is a wrap. I need to need to do something else and, and decided to go back to graduate school. Yeah. I mean, there were so many trigger points. I think that being a black woman in corporate America is difficult, that this is not a secret. I mean, everybody does know this. And I can remember once, you know, there's like certain things that stand out to you in your career that become emblematic or like a, just like the quintessential kind of experience that says it all. I can remember I worked at at a company and I'm not going to start naming names, but I worked at a place and I wrote the handbook on diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is before it was like called DEI. This is just like in the early days of doing so-called diversity work in the nineties. And I wrote it as a business case. Like, here's the business case for why diversity makes sense. Like, you know, better return on investment, better employee morale, all of the things that, uh, you know, better ideas. I mean, I'm citing like research and it, you know, this, this makes sense to me. It was one of my job responsibilities. And a few years later, I get a call from someone at that company and they said, Hey, we found this thing. And, you know, this book that you wrote this little like manual and, yeah, we just wanted to know, like, who actually wrote it? And I was like, what? And they're like, well, who wrote it? Because you don't have like a lot of citations in here. So I was like, I wrote it. And they were like, no, 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 really. Like, where did you get the words that you put on the paper? <laughs> and I was like, ain't this about a, <laughs> oh my God, this is like a hundred percent what it's like to be a brilliant black woman. It just unequivocally, no one actually believes you did that thing and you get no credit for it. And of course, you know, it wasn't like I got promotions for it or anything when I wrote it, but if this was like some jewel that I had left behind that everyone was trying to figure out how they could use it. And so, you know, that was an interesting moment where I thought, "Mm, I am really not feeling it, even though I love writing and I love like cohering ideas. And of course that was the universe telling me I should go be a researcher or a professor or some type of career like that. Cause I love doing that. So that was an interesting moment. And then years later, when I was working in advertising, I, okay, everybody gets your tissue. Cause this is like a little bit more of a, like a, a, a harder story, but I will say, um, I worked at this company and my mom died and she died kind of like, it was kind of unexpected for me. Maybe everyone else could see she was not well and probably wasn't going to pull through. But you know, you're like the baby of the family and you just don't see what everyone else sees. So I was young. I was in my early 30s. And I remember that she passed away on a Sunday morning. And I called my boss and I said, I was like, you know, paralyzed. I could barely even speak. And I said, you know, I my mom passed away and I'm, I'm not sure when I'm going to be back to work. I was, you know, back home in Fresno and I worked in Oakland and my boss said, I'm really sorry. I know this is awkward, but you know, we have that big client meeting tomorrow 
and you wrote the presentation for it and no one else can give it as good as you. So I just want to make sure that you're still going to be able to be there. And I was like, what? And so she kind of made me feel like if I didn't come and give this presentation, maybe my job was threatened a little bit. So the next morning, you know, I, I know my clients were black, which was amazing. That was just like a weird coincidence at this big company. So I got on, I look like death warmed over. Can you imagine? I mean, I looked like this was before zoom, but I, I mean, my voice was wrecked out. I'm like crackling, you know, I mean, and so I opened the meeting and I say, I'm really sorry, friends. You know, I, I was like my, so much gravel in my voice. Oh, I'm really sorry, but I have to give this presentation, even though my mom died 12 hours ago, the agency really wants me to give this presentation to you. And um, (laughs) I'm sure that's what it sounded like. And that was a big moment for me of realizing just how incredibly callous and inhumane places can be for the buck, you know, for the bottom line. I mean, I was a very good salesperson. And so I had to do it. And, you know, about six months later, I was back at work quickly because again, I felt the threat, the economic vulnerability of not going to work. And then six months later, a white guy on the job, his mom died you know, they gave that mofo like six months off. I don't think he came to the job one time. I'm pretty sure he was on paid leave. Everybody just all they talked about was like, oh, his mom died. And I was like, wow, that they the Red Seas. They, they imported the Red Seas, didn't they? Let me tell you what they were <laughs> like, let's get the care baskets. You guys, we need a meal train. I mean, they had it going and he was rich. So it was deep as hell. And, you know, those kinds of things happened to me. It's like, I remember these like deeply personal, egregious, like violations of my spirit. Those were the things that really, really killed me. You know, I loved otherwise the kinds of work I was doing. I always felt like it was creative and fast paced. And I met interesting people and I had these amazing clients and all kinds of colleagues. And I loved, loved, loved that part. But the moments that it actually like borderline was snatching my soul were the moments where I realized I probably can't do this my whole life. And so, of course, I went to academia, which is like 10 times worse. (laughs) So I don't know. I did it. I really, I have not worked it out. Don't, don't, don't take my secrets. I don't know. I'm not (laughs) a series of bad choices, obviously. Oh my God. It's like, I started having some PTSD as you're telling me about issues with like, you know, when your parent dies or something like that, because, you know, we've all kind of been through through that, you know, and, and, and I won't, again, I won't name an organization, but I can recall having a monumental birthday and all I wanted to do, and you know, your birthday only comes on a Friday every seven years. Oh <laughs> birthday on a Friday. Birthday. B- birthday coming on a Friday. And I said, hey, I really want to take some time off, you know, j- just that day. Can y'all not call me today? That's that's the only thing I asked the kids for. That's the only thing I asked everybody to ask for. On my birthday, can y'all not ask me for nothing? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's it. You know, that's a simple birthday present. Do you know I got terminated from a job? Oh, my the God. Day, like, it no. had to be the day I got back from my birthday. Like, on that Monday or Tuesday. They Happy like, birthday. Yeah, Ricky, man, we can <laughs> give you all the free time you want for your birthday. <laughs> exactly. 
and and, That's and crushing. when we talk about when we talk about th- like you not necessarily doing anything wrong, sometimes we just don't fit in. Sophia, yeah. like at the end of the day, we already know with your credentials, with the, the stuff that you've done, people try to appropriate your work. You know, they want to take, they're amazed that you did it and how you were able to do that because you did it before they were able to do it. Do, do you know what I mean? It's, this is the same thing about busting the kids to the, to, to the hood, right? Like yeah. they're doing some amazing stuff over there. We need to send some young soldiers over there to figure out what they're doing and bring it back to us. You know, it's no different. It's no different. It really isn't any different. And and I'll tell you, if you want to know what what's good in the future, what's possible, what you should be looking more closely at, you should go where Black women are and you should go look at what we're looking at. Because I'm telling you, across every class, education, um, every kind of background, you see Black women thriving out of nothing, right? Out of opposition, um, being creative in ways that are required for our existence. And so to me, I'm really, you know, I feel, of course, the harms that come, but I also feel so incredibly lucky because in some ways, you know, we can just say like, we just don't care. Like at some point, you know, you saw what happened to Katanji when she was up for the Supreme Court nomination. It's like, it actually doesn't matter what your profile is. Yeah. Um, you are still going to get raked through the coals and um, held to some absurd standard that let's say two other known sexual harassers on the court are not going to be held to. So I think in that way, we have a certain kind of superpower and, you know, the superpower is, you know, eventually just learning how to not not care, not care so much that we really hurt ourselves. And I learned that the hard way, you know, when I thought I was so loyal to the companies and the organizations that I had worked for, I was like a good worker. I did all the right things. And then they still didn't care when I was crushed under the weight of grief. That's when I was like, oh, oh, actually it's a totally different set of rules. And I think that when you learn, this is a secret. When you learn that the meritocracy is not for you, you are actually liberated from it. And that is really powerful because you know, you're not earning your way into all kinds of spaces and places you want to be in. Sometimes it's luck. And sometimes you just have to go make a space for yourself somewhere else on your own terms as best you can. God, man, I'm over here. If I had a lighter right now, like it would be like, man, back in the day, before there was cell phones, you, you, you'd light your lighter at the concert. You know what I'm saying? My lighter would be going right now, Keith. It'd be going right now. <laughs> so look, Sophia, um, Keith and I speak regularly about some of the unspoken challenges that we faced in corporate America with um, like the overall environment with respect to microaggressions and toxic relationships. And you touched on that, you know, as we're talking about a different standard, you know, when it comes to the work that you turn in and you trying to take time off, that is a toxic work environment, right? And when you're young, you don't really know how to deal with that, right? It's coming at you and you're starting to think that maybe something is wrong with you, but can you speak specifically if you can, because you and I and Keith, we had, we had a conversation and you were talking about some interesting relationships. So specifically, can you speak to like your relationships with other women leaders who didn't have like the same level of 
melanin in their skin, okay, or shared experiences in their lives, how did that like impact your journey? So I, I know how some of this other stuff, which is horrific, you know, great for us because it gave you the confidence and the courage to do some outstanding work that we're going to touch on in a little bit here. But how did that specifically like that relationship with white women, you know, how did that impact your career? I know you, as you were giving the setup, I was like, damn, I must have said something about white women when we were doing the pre-call and there's so much to say, what did I say? Well, of course, you know, I have had many, a difficult experience and also some very keen insight you know, mm -hmm. my mother was white. My father was black. I was raised around a lot of white people. I have some insider knowledge, let's just say, into some of their ways of being that can be incredibly harmful to black children, to black people, you know, to neighbors and people they interact with. And so, you know, that has been probably one of the most predictable and yet inconsistently stunning kinds of experiences that I've had in the workplace, which is that I have mostly felt discriminated against and had really terrible experiences with white women colleagues. And I don't think that's particularly novel to me. I think a lot of, you know, women of color have those kinds of experiences, especially black women. And, you know, I read this very interesting thing this morning on Twitter, where someone tweeted out that the reason why it's so hard when something like, let's say, the repeal of Roe v. Wade and the loss of women's rights over bodily autonomy happens and everyone wants to immediately spring into action and start doing work. Of course, we know Black women are going to be the most harmed by the repeal of Roe v. Wade. There'll be the most consequences for us in terms of these kinds of losses over our health, our reproductive health where we already suffer, you know, at greater rates of, um, you know, maternal mortality and all kinds of complications related to reproduction. So you have, you know, this question about like why women can't unite, right. In our, in our shared interests. And that includes in the workplace, quite frankly. And I thought, I thought it was so interesting. Someone tweeted out, they said, well, part of that is because white Americans are often socialized around joining clubs participating in activities, but not in building community. And because they don't know how to build community, they actually relate almost always in transactional terms. Okay, this is generally speaking, in terms of political organizing, right, or building solidarities. It's not like just like across the board, I'm sure on everything. But it is relevant around when we're being all paid less than the men are being paid you know, why don't we work together to get things like pay equity? And, you know, there's always like the racism will always be this factor in making sure that white women are protecting their own interests first. Right. And I've seen this so many times over and over. I've had white women actively vote, for example, against promotions when I know, because there's like only two men in the joint, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, and so all the other votes had to come like from, I know who they came from. I'm the only black woman here. So, you know, things like that, I think are so, um, you know, well, they're just, they're telling about the times and about how racism is, is, um, rewarded and will always be kind of like a, a default logic that people are socialized around where they have these kinds of transactional ways of engaging 
in their own interests. And those are things that are really different to things like building community and solidarity. And like, we're all in this together. I mean, I don't know how other people work, but every place I've ever worked where there were other black people, I'm always like, okay, y'all, how's it going for you? Here's how it's going for me. Do you got some information? I got this information. You know, we're just doing that because we know the game is kind of locked up against us and we need as much information on the, on the job as possible. And of course, we also know when someone who's not playing, then, you know, they're not in the club anymore. Then we're like, we can't ask, we, we cannot mess with you. And I don't mean mess. So, you know, it's like, those are the kinds of things that I think are really, really important right now in this moment where women are under attack in the workplace, women are under attack in our society. You know, we may as well be living under some type of religious nationalist rule And we're going to need these solidarities. And, you know, I look around, I'm like, well, 96% of the black women, we showed up and we, we vote and we we do our part. So where's everybody else at? And I think, you know, those are like, of course, these are probably not any revelations from among people who are listening, but I do think it's kind of like, we have to name that these experiences are happening because most of the times I think we feel gaslit on the job. And people try to tell us, you know, it's all in our mind and that these things aren't really real and we know that they're real and we make them even more real so that we can apprehend them and intervene upon them. And that's why we have to talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) Man, I had to stand up for this shit, Sophia. I'm just saying saying things are so obvious. That was Jesus. Y'all didn't catch that. (laughs) Y'all didn't catch that. You know, it's so amazing how you're talking about this and going through my mind of some of the things you just talked about, like Black women carry this country. Black women are saving this country from from ourselves, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, I don't even care. Easy, right? And and for me, in some ways, it's like the the progressive, liberal-minded women can be the most dangerous to our security at some at some points in times because of some of this transactional stuff that you're talking about because at the end of the day it's like you can have all the credentials in the world you can have all of the sound arguments in the world you know you can have all the all the data in the world and when it comes time to do the right thing and stand up for for your for your people you don't do it yeah, it's like MIA. I got to tell you, when I moved, the best job I've ever had now has been, um, I recently left um, a department that I was in at UCLA and I moved to the gender studies department. And I've always had a line in African-American studies and, you know, since I've been in academia, but being in gender studies is really some out of this world next level, because it's like, if you work in a gender studies department, let me tell you what, first of all, we already know you're a feminist. All right. So that's like, just goes without saying you also have a powerful analysis of society. You really understand things like intersectionality. You understand like that power is unevenly distributed across racial and gender lines. And you know that the more gendered female you are or gendered queer you are, and the more racialized you are, the things are going to be in terms of these power structures. Right. And so you kind of like, that's like a baseline rolling into gender studies. I mean, so the faculty meetings are amazing. I have to tell you, I love gender studies because first of all, everyone in there is 
like me, like super efficient, on point, smart, can get it done. So we just like can handle a lot of business very fast. We don't even have to labor on these things because everyone's already on point and knows what needs to be done. And so boom, 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 boom. And then it's like, damn girl, those shoes are so cute. Where did you get those? I gotta have that bag. I mean, you know, then it's just like fun. It's you that you can have. That's just so light and beautiful and, you know, and, um, amazing. So it's like, it's an incredible for me. I feel like the, you know, such an honor that I get to be a professor of gender studies at UCLA and to be with like, who I think of as the, the real bosses who, um, you know, have a a great, a lot of great ideas and are teaching, um, the generations about the high stakes world we are living in and what, who's winning and who's losing and what we can do to shift that. And then also just like have people who aren't there gunning to take you out. And that's it. That's, so everyone really, the moral of the story, the secret here is everybody go get a degree in gender studies and live your best life. I don't know. That's like a, it's just a bonus. <laughs> no, I mean, this is like amazing. I mean, I, I mean, the, you, you talked about like you, the, the privilege you have of being around, you know, people like that, like this is a privilege for Keith and I, you know, just to be able to have these types of discussions with people who are actually out there about that work in trying to do those things and that I mean that that's you that that that's absolutely you so look we got some more stuff you know okay. we we just getting into Let's this I know Keith got a you know something he want to ask you you know right now so we'll uh maybe get into like our, watch out for Keith yeah <laughs> I'm already now after that intro. yeah yeah this conversation so far has been mind-blowing but I wanted to change it up just a little bit and talk with our sister about her book because she is a premier expert on algorithmic discrimination. So let's talk about your book, Sophia, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. And you had this great career, 15-year-long career in tech. And so I'm just curious how uh, you kind of pivoted and what really inspired you to kind of dig in on this topic. I mean, it seems so obscure, so niche, so um, something that most people wouldn't even care about or think about. So what inspired you to kind of dig in in it? And, you know, why was it so important for you to kind of expose the truth once you found out what was going on? Okay. So Listen, I mentioned I went back to grad school later. And as I was leaving the industry, the ad industry, we were doing things like doing significant media buys on the major search engine platforms. Okay. This is like at the time, it was like Yahoo, Google, you know, I think Lycos or AltaVista might have even still been around. I mean, this was a minute ago. And I really understood those to be like another distribution channel for advertising. I mean, I really understood it that way. It was not a lot different than television, radio, out of home. I mean, the other kinds of mass media channels we were using. And of course, you had to be much more sophisticated at the time that I was leaving industry because we were trying to make it look like it was an objective truth. You know, like, oh, well, Google put it on the first page, so it must be the best because we understood that that's how the public related to search engines. Of course, because we're old heads, we had been on the internet for a long time. We knew what it was like using 
like going into chat rooms. Does anybody know anything about the, 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 you know, like that's how you were trying to get information in the old days. You didn't have a search engine indexing the web. So when I went back to grad school, I was thinking about things like, wow, you know, we had digitized and put a ton of things like black history on the web in the nineties and early aughts. And what happens if Google doesn't index it? Like, are we going to lose all of that? You know, I was thinking about things like that. Just, I was just kind of curious, like what, what's going to happen with the future of all this black knowledge and genius that we have put all over the internet. Cause you know, we were out there early. Anna Everett wrote this amazing book called digital diaspora. That's like the whole like early history of blacks and computing. And also Charlton McElwain wrote this book called black software. These are two good books for people who've been on the internet, black people who've been on the internet for a long time to just read yourself into history. And so I was thinking about that. And, you know, at the same time, I, like I mentioned, I was going to the information school at Illinois and everyone was starting to talk about Google. Like it was the new public library. And I was like, wait, what it, what? Mm-mm-mm. No, it's not. I knew. And right then, right at like at that time, this book came out by Siva Vijanathan called The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. And that book broke me. I was like, I went to like, I would go to bed with with bell hooks and Siva by Jonathan, do you know, like these books and read them until I fell asleep every night. And I would, you know, I bell was because it's like, I hadn't been able to read black feminist texts in a work kind of situation because I'd been working like a dog in corporate America. So I hadn't really been reading black feminist texts since I was an undergrad. I was back in grad school and I was like, you know, I'm reading everything and like totally getting all caught up again. And then I'm reading all this information science. And I was like, actually black feminism has a lot to say about race and gender and representation and misrepresentation and how the media distorts our image for profit and Hollywood and like all of these places. And I was like, there's actually a lot here that I could use to talk about the internet. And that's what I did. I was trying to figure out what is a study that I could do that would demonstrate that Google and other search engines are not these neutral tech platforms that just give you the best things at all times. And so I did a study where I took the census. I took every racial and gender category that was on the census and I, I crossed them up and I like all these different, like more than 80 different combinations. And I just did Google searches on them. And I looked to see what you got. And over and over and over again, when it came to people who were gendered female and people who were racialized black or brown, we fared the worst. So the word, like to me, the most egregious thing was that black girls, 90% of like the, the hits were pornography, hyper-sexualized content, something that was like deeply expl- sexually explicit. And I was like, see, now you don't have to add the word porn and you don't have to add the word sex. Black girls are just synonymous with pornography. And that's kind of like what Bell Hooks has written about, about other ways in which black women and girls are pornified and that those racist and sexist stereotypes about black women being hypersexual is actually a stereotype that's rooted in the kind of the ending of the transatlantic slave trade, when the only way that you could reproduce the, the enslaved African labor force was to have black women and girls reproduce. 
So you could re if you reproduced the enslaved African people, they would be born into bondage once the slave trade was outlawed. And so this idea that gets born out through like porn and hypersexualized like content is a deep racist stereotype in our society that's used in service of oppressing us. It is not like people think like it's not used because Beyonce sexy y'all. It's like an old, old trope and this kind of Jezebel trope. And I wrote a book about it. I really, that was the jumping off point to say, listen, the things we find in search engines are not neutral. They're political. They have meaning. And, you know, it's cool if you use it to find out, I don't know, like what time does Starbucks close? But see, when you use it a lot for these banal kinds of things that are kind of meaningless and it gives you the right answers, when you go to look for things that are more sophisticated, or you ask social questions, you're going to get things that you think are true because it was true when you ask something common. And when you ask something less common, it's going to be deeply manipulated. And so this whole book is an unpacking of dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of not only how that happens, especially to Black people, even in the most extreme case of somebody like Dylan Roof, trying to make sense of the news reporting on Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. And he says in his own racist manifesto, he's like, I was trying to understand why the news media was blowing up Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. I was trying to understand what was going on. And then he trips into a white supremacist rabbit hole of information. And he goes on to say that he starts reading about all these black on white crimes and murders. First of all, y'all know there ain't no such damn thing, because if there was black on white murders, there would be no black people left. Okay, so let's just go on and put it where it needs to be. But, you know, he goes down this horrible series of websites and he comes out on the other end and he says in his own words, and now I can say I'm completely racially aware. And he goes on to commit a mass murder at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. So, you know, from the seemingly banal, like I just did a search for black girls. I wonder what black girls, what are, who, what are black girls about to searching for info on Trayvon Martin and the consequences of that in the case of Dylan Roof, this book unpacks why we have to care about these technologies, the threat that they are not only to our communities, but also more broadly to democracies around the world. And now I'm sure that no one wants to read this book because it is a super downer, but it is important information. Well, go look, look, you in the village now, let me tell you, our community, they want to know all the answers to the shit you're talking about. They want to know it all. Like I, I guarantee you, after listening to this, we're going to have a ton of people asking questions. They're going to be saying, how did, can they get in contact with you? All that yeah. which will give them that information. But this is just so powerful. And this is, again, what we bring to people on secrets is we want to know, you know, this stuff. So if you can, we just got a couple more questions. And I need to tell the listeners, this is one of them times when you go into church and the, and the, and the pastor got something, uh, he got quite a bit to say. And they're like, look, y'all. I know y'all trying to watch the game in a minute, right? But I got a little bit I want to tell you, right? I'm going to keep you in here a little bit longer. That's that's what today is, right? Because this is so important, you know, for us as we're kicking the season off here. But if you can, Sophia, how does your body of work on bias, algorithms, like how does it impact communities 
of color in terms of quality of life, access to information and generational wealth. Can you speak to that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, let me just back up a little bit and say that 10 years ago, so this is, you know, it's 2022, it was 2012 when I finished this PhD. So I started looking at these things in about 2009, 2010. And Back then, I would say, I would go to conferences and I would talk to people and I'd say, you know, the algorithms are discriminatory at the level of code. The way they are being encoded when it comes to Black people is dangerous. And people would shout at me at conferences. I remember once kind of older white gentleman standing up and like saying, you know, maybe the Black girls just do more porn. And I was like, sir, have a seat. Okay, that's not it. So this idea now, of course, Black people, Black creators all over the internet, we know things like that when we're shadow banned, we know when we are being, our content's being algorithmically suppressed and people aren't seeing it. We know, we're like, wait a minute, is the phone listening to me? Because I sure just got an ad for something I was talking about one minute ago. Like all these different kinds of phenomena that we know are happening. This book will at least validate that those things are happening. And the things that we see in terms of being surveilled are real. Now, what has happened since the book came out is that we've had an explosion of more harmful things. I mean, when I was writing about this, you know, it was like, I was kind of gathering everything that I thought was findable. But now every week there's a new headline about some surveillance technology that's getting deployed toward our communities, whether it's predictive policing or it's recidivism prediction software, you know, deciding whether you will get cashless bail, right? Whether you will get out of jail if you're arrested, um, whether you will get a mortgage using different kinds of information that can be collected about you, And all the things you do on your smartphones and on your computers, in your video games, data brokers take that information and they buy, sell, and trade it all day long. So every time you check one of those boxes that says, I agree in order or install, and you scroll past all those terms of service so you can get that app or you can participate in something, you are consenting to information being collected about you and being sold to all kinds of companies. And the way we should relate to that is to know that that's like having, you know, our bedroom window open, no curtains and everybody being able to see in, right. Except we live on a really busy street where thousands of people are walking by every day. And that interior, the intimacies of our lives, our thoughts, things we're thinking about, things we're looking for. Maybe you're even searching for things for your mom or for you know your neighbor or your kids, or you're just curious because aren't we curious and we want to look up all kinds of things. Also, it's nobody's business what we're looking up, allegedly, but that actually, I know, listen, when I get to this part, men start freaking out because they're like, oh my God, I do not want anyone to know the kinds of things I have been searching for on the internet. So I'll be a um, so I'm not naming any particular group. I'm just saying that even when they ask the public researchers that will ask the public, would you be okay if your search history was shared with your employer or your spouse? I mean, like Ricky shaking his head, hell no, right now, Keith is like, no, I'm absolutely not, ma'am. No. So 
people know that they're out here using the internet in all kinds of ways, but unfortunately none of that is private. That's all knowable and shareable. It's no, known to law enforcement or anybody who wants to know employers are increasingly trying to access information about your social media profiles. There are companies that can actually scan all your social media handles and give a report out to potential employers, to admissions officers of schools, to all, anybody who wants to pay for it about like who you are or what, how you fare, you know, you got the, you got too much salacious stuff kind of going in your feed and, you know, people, you, you know, were sold a bill of goods about these technologies, like being like giving you more freedom and you could just be yourself. But of course the self that we are at home with our friends, or let's say at my house, the, the, how the person I am on the spades table is not the person they know at work. You know what I'm saying? It's just not the same person. It's not your business. Yeah, well, 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 me and Keith don't know that to be true yet. We're going to have to get you on the space <laughs> and we don't know that to be true yet. I'm I'm just telling you right now, we are friends. No matter what I say. <laughs> no matter what I say. Okay. I'm just, all I'm saying is that this idea of like, that who we are, and our behavior, you know, the, the, many of these tech companies, they can take a very little bit of information about you and your behavior on the internet, and they can make predictions about the kinds of shoes you'll buy, the kinds of things you'll do, the kinds of things they can put in front of you to entice you and to have you buy things. And they're incredibly accurate. I mean, most, even Facebook says it knows you better than your own, you know, partner, your intimate partner in terms of how what your triggers are and how it can get you. And also these companies are deeply implicated in like behavioral shifting and right-wing radicalizing and circulating propaganda that looks like it's news. And so, you know, when we look at things like the January 6th insurrection, we look at things that are happening in the world. We look at people not getting vaccinated for a disease that like is would, would be like getting a measles you know, or um, vaccine when we were kids. I mean, when you look at the way in which people now respond um, because of the way in which propaganda circulates and behavioral modification kinds of targeting happens on the internet, it's actually, we have a lot to lose. And this is why we have to be having these conversations and we have to um, keep the same amount of distrust and eyebrow raising and side-eyeing that we do about a lot of things. We need to bring it to the tax sector too, for sure. <laughs> I told you she was a genius. I don't know. I you. See? That's what we see to prove it. So Sophia, one final question for you. We all have those special moments in our lives that, that we remember that are always kind of that shining star point that we can point to that, yeah, I did it. I'm just curious what it was like for you when you got that call about the MacArthur Genius Award. When Grammys and Emmys and those stuff, we know those things are going to be announced. So we know people are sitting at the phone at three o'clock in the morning waiting for the call. But I'm imagining that it wasn't quite like that for the MacArthur Genius Award. So what was that whole call like when you received it and said, you're the winner? First of all, I had been getting this call from a Chicago phone number for like two weeks and I thought it was a robo call. So I kept declining it. Well, cause you know how black folks are, right? When they uh, never come up, but you don't know it. You like, I don't know that number. You understand what I'm saying? I don't know you. I was like that Mariah Carey gift. I don't know her. 
Okay. So <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't know the number. I kept declining it. And then finally I get a text that's like, Dr. Noble, could you answer the phone? And I was like, oh, this is really formal. They're calling me Dr. Noble. So obviously it's not somebody who knows me and loves me because they never call me that. And, um, and so I was like, oh, okay. This is, so, so then I kept like Chicago, Chicago this is weird. All right. So I answer the phone and it's, you know, senior vice president at um, the MacArthur foundation. I can tell immediately it's a black woman and she's like, I, Dr. Noble, this is such and such from the MacArthur Foundation. And I just wanted to tell you that you've been selected as a MacArthur fellow. And my husband had just left for the airport to pick up a friend. He was coming, like one of his friends from high school who's coming to see us. So I was at home by myself. So immediately I'm like, I have my like head in my hands. I don't even understand what I'm hearing. And then what they do, um, first of all, and it's super secret. So she's, she starts reading a bio and the bio is the bio that they have written, that they've culled together from all of your, like all these senior people in your field, um, you know, who have written letters of support for you. And so then you're hearing these words, it's like, that's not my bio from my website. You know what I mean? That's like, a, that's some, that's somebody else. And they're words that don't make sense because these aren't ways that you think of yourself. You know, I mean, this has to be for everybody. I know for me, I was like, who, it, th this can't be me. I'm just like a regular old girl from Fresno. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not relating to myself in these words in this way. And it says very moving course I'm sobbing like a snotty cry it was a, a snotty ugly cry and um they finished reading that and she's like you know and I just said I could just start crying thinking about it I was sitting right here in this chair where I am right now talking to you and I said you have just changed the future of me and my family and that was true because there's something that happens and I want everyone, I, everyone who's listening, everyone, I want everyone to have this feeling, whatever the feeling is, where you finally hear the words that for you are, tell you and affirm to you that you are enough. And it should not have to be a MacArthur Genius Award. It should be from who, whomever you hold in respect and bring the bar way down. But when someone tells you that you matter, believe them and hold that because that did not only just change, like, like, okay, I immediately played off my student loans. You know what I mean? Like, I got, like, I did the practical <laughs> things that you need to do, um, uh, because I should not be in my fifties with effing student loans still that I've been paying for a hundred years. So, um, that right there, but also I, I realized like, you know, when, for, for academics, this is the highest accomplishment. This is the highest award. And after all those years of like being discriminated against at work by, you know, racist whoever. colleagues, whoever, whoever, I don't even know her name them, anymore. All, all in them. <laughs> Whatever. I don't even, I don't even think about them. Yeah. Okay. You, you realize like, oh, 
that burden I can put down. And, yeah. you know, that is a burden. I wish that I had not set the bar somehow so weirdly high mm-hmm. for myself, you know, like I don't need that to be whole, but there is something about like accomplishing a thing. And that's a thing you can't even set out to accomplish because it's a secret committee. You can't apply for it. There's no, you know, it's like given to you. And um, I just, it, it just confirms for me that um, we need to make awards for ourselves. Yeah. We need to celebrate and signal constantly to each other that you matter. What you've been through is worth something. And um, so that we can lay these burdens down. And that is what, that's what this did. It just freed me from having to care about proving anything anymore. And I'm grateful. And I think that that will improve my work. And it's certainly made me feel more courageous about taking on these big tech companies that are the most powerful companies in the world. And I feel like now if they silkwood me, people are going to know it was them. So that, that is a little bit of a relief. Look, look, Sophia, girl, I, look, I, we, know you, we know you was crying. We know you was crying like Viola Davis over there. We know it was, <laughs> I was. We, we know you was getting it. Okay. And we know you had to explain to uh, quite a few of your family members what the hell the MacArthur fellow award was, right? Because I did. They like, were like, that's cool. I was like, right. It's like when I was a professor, when I first got my first job as a professor, you know, when you're a professor, you have ranks. So you start out as an assistant professor. Then when you get tenure, you're an associate professor. And then when you're like, you know, you've done whatever, you become a full professor. But these are only ranks that matter inside the university. You're just a professor to the rest of the world. And I remember when I got my first job as an assistant professor and telling my family and they were like, assistant professor. They're like, but when do you get to be a real professor? What, are you just like assistant to another professor? Like they thought I was like a, the assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The professor. You just sit next And to I was boss. like, why do I even tell you guys shit? I mean, yeah. I swear to God. It's yeah. like, you just, you're not into it. You just, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they they like, it's not this, it's not the place to get the joy they, about those kinds of things. They like, uh, Sophia, she just sitting next to the boss. Girl, now go, go get, go, go, uh, finish taking out the trash. Go do whatever it exactly. was. They're like, right. What's for dinner? <laughs> exactly. So, look, we are just so appreciative that you were able to kind of share that story with us because we already know that all of the stuff that you talk about are things that we think we know about or we heard something about, we don't really know how to connect the dots. So we appreciate you being able to share that story. But this is the part of the show where we kind of navigate into the, you know, you're not crazy moment, you know, and we start talking about the receipts. Okay. So today- the part where you get fired. (laughs) No, 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 no. This right here is the stuff that we didn't have anything to do with, right? We're just talking about these receipts. So today, uh, Secrets Family, we're going to share receipts on the experiences of Black women in tech, and we'll share some receipts on the impact of bias and algorithms and people of color. So KP, if you can hit us with that first receipt, brother. Receipt number one, we know that Black women are some of the most entrepreneurial people on the planet. We just talked about how Black women are kind of carrying the country on their shoulders and moving things forward when it comes to voting rights and other issues. And tech has been a powerful pathway over the past 20 years for folks to build generational wealth. However, according to statistics collected by CompareCamp, the average funding by Black women for their startups is $42,000. It is actually 10x that. 
for white folks. 10x. And black women have raised, listen to this, 0.0006% of all tech venture capital funding from 2009 to 2019. Almost nothing. Nothing. (laughs) It's like someone dropped a 20 in the airport in San Jose and they picked it up and that was their VC funding. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. It's that like, that's true. the analogy. I don't know the, the metaphor for it because it might even really, been dropping a penny. It might even, it might even been dropping a penny with a hole in it. The penny wasn't really exactly. rushed. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You know, whose is this? Oh, you can have it. You can have it. <laughs> Receipt number two and that, uh, and the representation numbers in tech are just sickening. I mean, it really does make you like, you know, have a little bit of that in the back of your throat, you know, there. Of the total percentage of women working in tech, which is 25%, Asian women are 5%, Black women are 3%, and Hispanic women are just 1%. Further, Black and Latina women are less likely to be hired for a tech role compared to white women. Black women only make 18% of entry-level jobs in tech compared to 30% for white women and 35% for men. And finally, Black women held 3% of all computing jobs, which directly ties to why Sophia works, why why her work is just so damn important. Yeah, because the coders are the ones making the algorithms. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah. And the voices represent (laughs) it. I mean, where are we? And it's so true. I mean, you look at cross when you see even in it's suspect, even you have to double click into those jobs in the tech sector, because you may be a black woman or black people working in a tech company. But you know, are you in HR? Are you in recruiting? Are you in some other job that isn't central to the product? Mm -hmm. Of course, the product is what's so dangerous that so many of us, you know, study and look at it. Absolutely. Receipt number three. Let's talk about these algorithms and how they unwittingly impact people of color. Did you know that Black and Latinx people pay more to mortgage or refinance their homes than other people? And why is that? It's basically because of redlining. And Ricky and I have talked about the impact of redlining and how that also impacts generational wealth. It may even have some impact on on some of your career opportunities at the end of the day. But these algorithms are used to calculate creditworthiness, and they use zip codes to determine rates that they charge. In fact, a study by UC Berkeley showed that lenders using algorithmic software to determine mortgage rates charge otherwise they charge equivalent Black and Latinx uh, borrowers end up paying 7.9% higher rates for the purchase or the refinance of their mortgage, costing nearly $765 million a year. And those extra mortgage points that Black and Latinx people are paying for mortgages, even though they are equivalently uh, credit worthy. And these fintechs fail to eliminate what's impermissible in terms of discrimination, you know, things that are actually written to law that says you can't do, but these algorithms fail to differentiate or take into consideration this discrimination because the all the algorithms do is basically this they just extract rents, right? They extract rents from these different zip codes, right? And or they profile 
people, especially people who have lower shopping behaviors or shop in lower disadvantaged kind of areas, if you will. So, for example, if somebody is shopping at or looking online or shopping at um, Family Dollar or Walmart or someplace like that versus someone who is shopping at Louis Vuitton or Saks Fifth Avenue, just based on the algorithm, the person who shops at those higher end stores are going to be deemed more credit worthy and therefore are going to uh, spit out a result that says that they are deserving of a lower interest rate. So all of this stuff is crazy and it's just tied together, which is just, uh, you know, unbelievable at the end of the day in terms of the impact that it can have. Absolutely true. In fact, there was a story, I mean, more than a decade I, I was teaching uh, ago about a African-American man who was going to visit some family. He was in Atlanta. This is, he was a second generation, like financial planner. He'd learned this from his father and he had a very lucrative, like financial planning business. He had, you know, 800 credit score. I mean, he, he was teaching people. He was a master uh, of finances and he, um, was engaged and he was going to get married and um, go on his honeymoon. Uh, and before that, just just before that, he was in Atlanta and he was going to um, pick up some groceries for a family member that he had, was visiting kind of across town. And he, he swiped his American Express in Walmart. And when he, you know, didn't think anything of it, went on his honeymoon while he was on his honeymoon, Amex cut his credit line like in half. And he completely was like, what in the world just happened? And he's calling, he's trying to figure it out. He can't figure it out. So of course, because of who he is by training, he does a forensic analysis and it through his forensic analysis of like years of statements, he figures out the only anomaly is that one trip into Walmart where he swiped that Amex. And when he talked to Amex, they said, this was like on the news. Um, they said that the profile of people who shop at Walmart was not as credit worthy. So this is called proxy data. And it's very under important to understand that it is against the law to engage in redlining, like accounting for your race, gender, you know, sexual orientation, any protected class in any kind of financial educational employment process. But all of these companies that engage in those kinds of processes use proxy data, which is not illegal. So your profile being like the profile of somebody who shops at Walmart gets used as a proxy data for working class people, right? Or working poor people. And these kinds of things are incredibly important that we pay attention to because, um, it, it translates into things like whether you are profiled for college or profiled for trade school or profiled for Ivy League or profiled for, you know, some trade school, community college, something else, the military. Um, people think that, you know, they are just like living and that these kinds of predictive analytics are not shaping their future, you know, because we the way we engage with them feels so free. It feels so easy. It's so easy to use. We don't always realize we're having very different kinds of experiences in terms of what we're pointed toward, what we think, what, what's made available to us as a range of options. And this is where these predatory products 
are so incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, the academic term for it is surveillance capitalism. And it's a basically a way of using these surveillance technologies to massively exploit economic advantage. And of course, we know what the history of those kinds of practices has been against Black people. But now it's very difficult to apprehend how it's happening, when it's happening, what data went into um, the kind of behavioral modification and um, steering and consumer um, steering that's happening. And so for me, my, my whole future, my current and all my work is really, I get up every day and I think about these things and I think about the kinds of opportunities that will be foreclosed for, for all our kids and, you know, all the generations to come without our even being aware of it and why we need um, protections from racially discriminatory, gender discriminatory, class discriminatory technologies that um, are swirling all about us. Oh God, we need you. We need you, sister. We need you. Just to, we need. We need you. We, we, oh my God, this is just amazing. It's but a major racial justice issue. I will tell you. Yeah, no, no, we, we, we see it, we feel it. And again, you are validating the fact that we tell our listeners in the village and you in this village now, you are not crazy. Yeah. Like what you are feeling is real. There is a reason behind it. Look, we got two more secrets to uh, to share for, uh, for, for our listeners here. Receipt uh, number four uh, is, this is gonna be a little crazy. So just check this one out. Did you know there is software out there calculating a risk assessment of your likelihood to get uh, to go to commit a crime and to go to prison, okay? Courts are using this software to determine your risk for committing another crime and using it as a basis for determining prison sentences. Who do you think is getting profiled? That's rhetorical, right? But we know the answer to it. ProPublica uh, obtained the risk uh, scores assigned to more than 7,000 people arrested in Broward County, Florida in 2013 and 2014. And it checked to see how many were charged with new crimes over the next two years, the same benchmark used by the creators of the algorithm. The score proved remarkably unreliable in forecasting violent crime. Only 20% of the people predicted to commit violent crimes actually went on to do so. The formula was particularly likely to falsely flag Black defendants as future criminals, wrongly labeling them this way at almost twice the rate as white defendants. So again, we're talking about the software that's out there, the algorithms. We're talking about the, the, the Jedi mind trick that's kind of happening behind the scenes here. Is we're trying to figure out, and I'm saying we as a, as a, as a nation are trying to figure out how to continue to keep folks in the box, how to continue to validate or verify why someone needs to be um, uh, discriminated against or profiled or whatever the case is. But again, the software is no good, but this is what we're talking about. This is what's happening you know, out there. This is, this is receipt. Keith and I, are not, we're not making this up. That's right, that's right. Um, Go ahead. You're not making it up, in fact, since that um, incredibly important um, investigative journalism that Julia Ingwen and Jeff Larson and their team at, um, at uh, um, Truthout did um, on the Compass Recidivism Prediction Software, since then, there has been the, and that was in Broward County, Florida. In Pasco County, Florida, there was a, some software that was sold to 
the sheriff's department, and I call this snake oil software, do you know, I mean, this kind of software that we're talking about here, where the sheriff's department was sold software that, that allegedly would predict which students would become criminals. And they, they went to the school board and the school board provided all of the students stu- their records. And what they enacted was this horrific racial profiling campaign against young people in the county that ultimately led to a young person committing suicide because they had been harassed so profoundly. It's actually a devastating story. Um, I'm on the board for Color of Change and Color of Change was one of the partners in a coalition of um, civil rights and local community organizations who pushed back um, and sued the sheriff's department there over this incredibly racist profiling system. But you know that people think that you can predict who's going to commit a crime or predict who's going to be gay or predict who's going to be the better employee by using some type of um, facial recognition software or um, analytic that takes in all kinds of disparate bits of information about somebody and makes a profile. I mean, the truth is every single one of us has a data profile that is constructed by different kinds of software systems that we engage with at work, at home, um, in all in the public, and we don't know what those data profiles are. Go back to all the things that you're searching for. Go back to all your nonsense and all your places on the internet. Imagine that all those things are being bought, sold, and traded, and being fed into different kinds of predictive systems that will predict all kinds of things about you, including whether you'll be a great employee. This is so incredibly, um, not only is it just fraudulent, it is a total fraud. It is not science. You cannot use these systems to determine with accuracy any of these kinds of things. You can um, create a profile about people and then declare that profile to be the wrong profile, right? That's a different project. And I think that um, our kids and our communities, um, we are ensnared in these systems. And so I've really been trying to like, you know, work with people at the Federal Trade Commission and the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, you know, staffers there to say these machine learning algorithms that are even looking for patterns in data sets that we don't even know we're part of are, um, they are profiling technologies that are profoundly discriminatory. They are violations of our human and civil rights, and they should be abolished immediately. They should be made illegal. And the things that was so interesting about, Ricky, that study about, you know, the recidivism prediction software is that I heard Jeff Larson, one of the journalists who worked on that case, we were on a panel panel together at Stanford a few years ago. And he said, you know, we walked into this software company um, it was like three guys had rented some space in a strip mall and we took 15,000 documents. We had boxes of documents that we took to show them. We had done the statistical analysis manually to show them. And they said, no, 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 no. We're just doing computer science. This is just math. We're not racially profiling. And they wouldn't listen at first. And finally they convinced them to listen. Of course, they guys broke down. They were full of remorse. They had no idea. And You know, I said on the panel after Jeff told the story, I said, you know, this is like pharmaceutical companies making a drug, 
rolling it out at CVS and Walgreens on the weekend nationwide, if people take it and they get sick or they die or their lives are ruined, then turning around and saying, Hey, you guys, it's just chemistry. It's just chemistry. Yeah. We're not doing anything, you know, like that's actually the posture of the tech sector. We're just doing computer science. We're just doing math. It's just statistical, statistical inference or predictive, um, uh, analytic. And they divorce the social consequences of that from themselves and any culpability. And of course, this is one of the most urgent reasons why we need legislation and accountability in this sector. So irresponsible. Oh, geez. And receipt number five, and this has to do with facial recognition software. And it's just crazy to me how uh, deeply ingrained this has become. And Sophia, you just mentioned um, some things about facial recognition software. But I mean, now you go to airports and things like that, you actually have robots telling Asian people to open their eyes and even software detecting different emotions based on a person's race. I mean, check... Listen to this. I mean, a University of Maryland study found evidence that facial recognition software interprets emotions differently based on a person's rate. You know, using publicly available data set of professional basketball players, they compared the emotional analysis from two different racial uh, facial recognition services, one called Face, and the other one is uh, Microsoft's uh, API that they use for facial recognition. And both, in both cases, both services interpreted the black basketball players as having more negative emotions than white players. And in fact, the face software consistently interpreted black players as angrier than white players, even controlling for the degree of smiling between the two uh, different groups. And Microsoft registered contempt instead of anger, and it interpreted black players as more contemptuous when their facial expressions were even ambiguous compared to, uh, to their white colleagues. They still interpreted it them as being more contemptuous. And these facial recognition softwares are increasingly being used for threat targeting and actually being used by companies in the interviewing process and and companies determining who's a good fit uh, for their organization. So you can only imagine the types of outcomes that you're going to get if people are relying on these things. Again, who's going who's gonna to be harmed the most at the end of the day with these things? So I just find this whole line of software particularly insidious and something that we have to keep our eyes on. Yeah. Absolutely. If there were one facial recognition, if there were one software that should be made illegal today, it should be facial recognition in use of predicting um, or letting you into your apartment or being you, letting you into your phone. I mean, this is an incredibly dangerous technology. And there are even more dangerous ones, I'm sorry to report out, that are with us now. Um, you know, GPT-3 and other kinds of um, large-scale software systems that you can pull right off the shelf where you can manufacture you know, what we call deep fakes or, you know, um, you know, video or images of people doing things that they didn't actually do or saying things they didn't actually say. I mean, these are changing global geopolitics. When you have um, countries using this kind of technology to say, let's say, you know, Russian um military and political officials 
using this type of technology so that the president of Ukraine appears to be um, surrendering his country to Russia. I mean, that just happened a couple of months ago. So the, 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 and, and of course I'll go back and to the kind of origin story where these technologies get exercised and practiced is often on women in terms of, you know, um, the way in which, uh, going back even to Photoshop, photoshopping women's faces onto images of pornography and using that to um, get them fired from their jobs and, you know, ruin their lives. I mean, the consequences are so severe and everyday people just cannot always comprehend what happened. They just think they didn't do well in the interview. They don't know it's because the software, um, discriminated against them, right? Read them wrong. And of course, um, this is very famous study by uh, doctors, um, Joy Bulamini and Tamni Jabru Dabraji, who are the all black women who um, at MIT, who showed that facial recognition software is, has the least efficacy. It's, it's the least reliable on black women's faces. So, you know, when you think about just the, the way in which these things are made, normative and, um, and used in service, quite frankly, of making the world more and more unequal, we have to ask ourselves the question, like, why is it that we have more data and technology than ever? And we have more um, global, social, political, and economic inequality to go with it. It's actually intertwined. And um, so I, while I'm grateful we have this opportunity to be together and have this conversation, um, remotely, you know, I, I, I really am, although I, I was ready to have it on the spades table in person and I will come to Oakland. Um, I just still think we have to stay alert and stay mindful always. Yeah, no, I mean, this, this is, this has been helpful as we're talking about these receipts. This is, you can't make this stuff up. This is what's out there. Right. And, and, you know, Sophia's commentary, her research, this is what she does for a living, everybody like this, that helps us understand the severity, you know, of this. What we want to try to navigate into right now, because this has just been amazing. Every every second of this conversation has been amazing. We want to leave uh, you all with some of these secrets that we talk about, right? And we have a double dose of secrets for you today. Sophia will provide, you know, three secrets on what women can do to navigate their careers in male-dominated industries, as we spoke to uh, earlier. And then we'll close out the episode with three additional secrets from Sophia uh, for uh, tech companies to eliminate biases with their algorithms. So Sophia, would you like, what would you recommend for black women and other women in terms of navigating male dominated industries? If you could just give us a few secrets, you know, there, that would be helpful. I think my number one secret is to have a really close, uh, you know, set of homegirls, you know, people that are your friends outside of work and maybe even inside of work to be your baseline of reality. Because we want to never forget that we are in reality and not into some nonsense that our people are trying to gaslight us with. That will actually that will keep you sane. And I believe in that strongly. Um, what's another secret? I think, you know, aspire to um you know, feel the feelings that, that you have about something being off. Um, 
a great way to have a good barometer of when something is off or when it's, when it's time to walk away from um, one situation and move to the next, whether it's in your work life or your personal life is to have a therapist um, and be healthy, be mentally healthy so that you are making sound decisions that are based in reality and not based in some like triggered past that you haven't unpacked and spent any time with. So um, I think therapy is a rite of passage for all women and we, we deserve it. Um, so I, I strongly recommend that really for all people, we all need a sounding board and we need to be able to kind of uncollapse, um, reality when, you know, from trauma, um, because we all experience trauma and I don't know, I think that, um, well, what's my secret that I finally figured out for myself. I, I, um, I am much more forgiving of myself before, you know, I was like, than I was when I was a young woman, I'm middle-aged now. So I actually don't have to care about as many things that I cared about when I was a younger woman. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think, you know, being in a place as quickly as you can to recognize that you are a bright light uniquely and that there's lots of other bright lights too. You don't have to be in competition. You can, um, you know, the patriarchy sets up those conditions for us. Racism sets up those conditions for us. Um, we don't want to be the unicorn and the only, we want to be in community with as many people and, and, and all be energized and in support of each other. And I think that's, um, you know, I appreciate being a woman because I feel like that is a, a part of like how a lot of women live and um, it's a value to us. So I think that like, you know, that sense of being one's own self as soon as you can. Don't wait until you're 50 something. Mm -hmm. No, this is just, I mean, look, I, the lighter is still going over here. Y'all, I might burn my fingers off over here. I'm just like, I'm so happy that that you've been able to give us some um, real tangible secrets and some that you prescribe to. You know, I think this is like key here. So Keith, why don't you... Um, you know, um, you know, hit us with the next one. And we just want to tap into some of your expertise right now. And if you could just wave your magic wand and, and make the world a better place, what would you tell these tech companies about what they could do to eliminate the bias in these algorithms and apps that they create? Well, number one, the tech sector is the most well-capitalized sector on the planet. Seven of the 10 most well-capitalized companies on planet Earth are tech companies. So the very first thing I would say is that the tech company, the tech sector and the biggest companies, they owe a huge debt of repair back to the public. And they should immediately transfer um, uh, significant resources in the billions of dollars to the communities that have been harmed by their products full stop. I mean, that would be like my number one, two, and three, because the truth is it is the activists and the um, parents and the people and the journalists and the scholars um, out here seeing the harmful things that are happening in the world, um, in our communities, who are doing the work. I mean, we are doing, we are not compensated by the tech sector, generally speaking. I mean, and we are doing the cleanup work 
of sounding the alarm, of trying to get regulators to um, pass laws to protect the public and, you know, from violations of our rights. So um, all that is also funded by the public's dime. Um, while the companies print trillions of dollars off of the harm. So they really owe repair immediately to the publics. And you can look at every major modern democracy, liberal democracy around the world right now, that in the last eight years um, has been bent toward fascism and anti-democratic authoritarian regimes, including in the United States. And um, that mean that is going to require a tremendous amount of repair of the social fabric of, of public institutions of public schools and universities and media and all the things health. Um, so that to me is, well, that's what I care about. I think that that's a demand we should be making and that they should do it voluntarily before we get the governments to require it of them. Girl, I mean, that's a drop the mic moment right there. That shit right there, that's a drop the mic moment. Like that's that's like, man, we're gonna have to play this back. That's a drop the mic moment. Look, Sophia, you dropped so many gems here, right? And I feel like we have just been so blessed. Like, like literally, like science. You went into the science, you went into some of the, the stuff that the average person just doesn't even know about, right? And you, like when I say you dropped the mic today, it ain't going to be picked up again the way that you was uh, dropping it today. So we really appreciate all of this. So Secrets Village, we told y'all we wasn't going to be playing around with season five, okay? We didn't built this thing up to this immaculate, you know, crescendo here where we are right now. And season five is about to be ridiculous. We sincerely appreciate you, Dr. Sophia Noble, okay, for being with us today. How can your new Secrets Village get in contact with you on social media or bring you to their company for speaking engagements? Because we already know the phone line is about to be blowing up. The email is about to be blowing up right now. So we want to make sure, how can people get in contact with you, you know, and how can they follow you, you know, moving forward? Yeah, that's so kind. Um, it's really been my pleasure to be here with you too. You are like, um, you know, the two brothers that I uh, didn't know I needed in my life, you know, to just goof off with. So I just appreciate you and for you just entertaining, you know, th- this conversation. It really, um, you know, it's information that we need and that we need to be able to act upon. So I'm very grateful. I, uh, I try to keep my writings at my website, which is Safiya, S-A-F-I-Y-A-U, noble.com. So you can read things that I've written for popular press and easy reads there too. Um, And there's a form there. If you want to reach me, you can fill out the form on the contact page. That's an easy way. I'm on Twitter at Safiya Noble. And I like to tweet out studies um, sprinkled with some of my own nonsense that and hot takes on the moment and politics and culture. Um, But that's a place where I try to point people to other great people who are also doing work in this field that you should know about. So um, you can follow me and see who I'm following. That'll help too. And um, I don't know, and I'm here at Secrets. And so you can listen to Secrets and um, 
and hopefully, um, you know, we will expand each other's villages here. And I'm really excited for that. Oh uh, yeah, you you ain't gonna be able to quit uh, uh, me and KP. We like we we, we go together now. We go together now. <laughs> we sent that note. We sent that note while the teacher was talking and said, "Will you go with me?" Yes. <laughs> Or no, it wasn't no maybe on there. It was yes or no. It was that that's all it was. So we go together now. You guys so are like, a mess. I love it. So we're just again, we we sincerely appreciate you, you know, for uh being on and just just going with the flow here, right? Because there's so much more, you know, that we we're only touching the iceberg on what we can do and how we can can galvanize the community here and kind of move things forward. So you can find more resources on the secrets and receipts that we shared here today by going to our uh, website, secrets.com and looking in the show notes for this episode. I look, it's going to be a lot of them, you know, in there and a lot of links, you know, today, but we really, really urge you to listen to it again, right? To go into those show notes, to connect with our sister here and follow her as well, because again, there's more stuff to come. And Dr. Noble, I also want to extend my thanks to you for being with us today and sharing your journey and being so real about everything. I mean, it was just amazing. And you're now officially a member of the Secrets Village. So you can't quit us now. So don't even try. And our Secret Village continues to grow because of listeners like you. So help your brothers out. You can do things like write a review on Apple or Spotify about the podcast, join our LinkedIn group, and commenting on our posts on social media. All of your all the channels, we're out there on them. And those comments help us um, grow our audience, and it also sets you up to be a thought leader. So please, please do whatever you can to help us out. And also check out the merchandise. Go to the goods tab on our website. We keep getting ideas from everyone. We have so much gear out there, right? We my been, box of gear coming to my house. I just want to know. Is that, okay, that I swag just bag is coming. You, you better believe it. <laughs> the swag bag is coming, right? Uh, so like, again, we're just so appreciative. So everybody just go to the uh, to the to the website, get that secrets gear. And y'all already know the KP and I are also, are, are also locked into helping you get that coin and getting your seat at the table. Sophia talked about it early in terms of the generational wealth, you know, piece of here. That is really, really important to us. And we are tipping the scales at $3 million in additional total comp increases that we've helped our people achieve by talking with us, right? And if you just hit us up for personal coaching services or training for your organizations, or provide a referral if you would like, you know, if you like what we're doing, we want to help everybody get paid. And again, we want to thank Dr. Sophia Noble once again for being with us today. I'm over here cheesing from ear to ear. And it's not because of the drink I've been sipping on. You know, Ricky does have a little heavy hand every once in a while. But speaking of drinks, it's time to fill up these empty cups and create some more hot fire for y'all because we told you we're not going to disappoint you in season five. So until the next time, everyone, thanks you so much for listening in today. And remember, when we share, you transform. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. In fact, one listener said that with Secrets, I learn new, actionable information listening to KP and PR. I enjoy the balance of data with the testimony of real experience, and we hope you agree. 
If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love. Subscribe and write a review on our podcast. And last, but certainly not least, elevate your professional game by signing up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when we share, you transform. Until next time, cheers.